Welcome to Storytime with Paul Doerr. This season of the podcast includes excerpts via live shows and in-studio recordings from my new book, I'm Leaving It, and other stories. Some of the stories are true and some are not. I'll let you figure it out. But they all hopefully have my trademark charm, wit, and profound wisdom. Purchase your copy of the entire book in paperback, ebook, or audiobook form at all major online booksellers. I also write a monthly newsletter that is both fun and insightful. To subscribe to the newsletter or for further information about the book, please visit pauldor.com. Today's story, Mountain Fog. The flight was direct from Toronto to Beijing. After 18 hours of recycling my own oxygen and the oxygen of other passengers, we were released, unleashed, into the chaos of Beijing's airport. The weeks leading up to my trip were hectic, full of long working days trying to finish projects. I edited right up to a few hours before my flight, leaving an interviewee from a documentary in mid-sentence. Usually, I am much more prepared for travel. Accommodations booked, attractions well documented. These arrangements were primarily done over the internet, but since at the time China was still somewhat restricted online, the opportunity to book beforehand was limited. I decided to improvise. After picking up my bag, I elbowed through the crowd and approached a hotel booking booth, I reserved a room and was given a business card with the name written in Chinese characters. I was instructed to take a bus to the main train station, and from there, get in a taxi, present the card to the driver, who would then take me to the hotel. Easy, right? The reality? I was a dumbass from the start. Outside, a rainstorm in full swing. Later on, people told me that after weeks of nothing but sun and 40-degree weather, the humidity broke and the rain started. Torrential rain on the exact day I arrived. Somehow I found the proper bus, and we drove into the heart of Beijing. On the bus, two middle-aged businessmen tried to talk with me. We carried on an entire conversation speaking two different languages. They seemed happy, getting excited at some points, quiet and displaying thoughtful looks at other times. The bus stopped outside the train station. I stepped into a puddle up to my ankles, and three young women holding umbrellas swarmed. They flashed brochures of various hotels in my face and spoke rapid fire, gesticulating with arms. I waved them off, smugly said in English, No thanks, I've already got a place to stay. The outside of the train station was a vast hangar-sized open area, with the building running along an entire block. People lined the length of the station using the canopy as shelter from the rain. They just stood, waiting. The rain did not allow me to survey the scene, I was quickly soaked to the bone. I located the taxi stand and ran through the rain. 
In the first taxi, I smiled and handed the driver the business card. Leaned back, looking forward to finding my dry hotel room. I would learn to drop the smugness quickly. He examined the card, flipped it over, reread it. He was perplexed, brow furrowed, shook his head. He handed the card right back and waved me out of the car, pushed me back into the rain. The taxi next in line did the same, and the one after that didn't even let me get into their car. Standing in the pouring rain, I decided to join the people under the canopy at the train station, review my options, develop a new plan of action. It might have been my imagination, but it felt like the intensity of the rain increased. I found a space under the canopy. People stared. At this particular moment, I felt they were all wondering, what in the hell is this guy doing here? I was thinking along the same lines. Once I stopped for a moment, and perhaps due to all this water, my bladder informed me it needed draining. As I moved through the thick crowd, my bulky backpack bounced and bumped into people. Through a window, I saw the international symbol for washrooms, but you were not allowed inside the train station unless you had a ticket. I shook away the thought of buying a ticket just to use the washroom. The same washroom sign was visible by the corner of the building. I joined the crowd under the canopy. Now I understood what everyone else was standing and staring at, waiting as they figured out what to do next. I was already wet, so I just walked right out from under the canopy and into the rain. I couldn't run anymore. I imagined someone having a good laugh watching me zigzag from the bus stop to the train station to the taxi stand and back to the train station as though I was inside some elaborate life-sized video game. Perhaps this was as far as I'd get, my remaining time here trying to get a taxi. Back where I started, the bus stop. The young women holding the umbrellas and brochures were waiting for another bus. Soaking, I approached them. Any hint of my earlier smugness seeped away with the rain. Through the flurry of arms and brochures, I said, If you can get me a taxi, I'll stay at your hotel. They might not have understood my words, but they understood my desperation. One girl instantly motioned for me to follow, and we ran. Cars honked as we cut across roads between vehicles and splashed through puddles. We got into the first taxi. The driver remembered me, started to wave me back out. But my savior, the young woman, yelled right back at him, pointed straight ahead through the windshield. Driving in Beijing was organized chaos. The pattern of the taxi driver was gas, honk, brake, yell at other drivers, and any number of variations of those four elements. We drove for about ten minutes, turning and weaving through so many roads that my internal compass barely recognized my own reflection in the review mirror. We pulled up to a ramshackle hotel and ran into the lobby. I booked a room, paid for it, and the young woman bowed and ran back into the rain, probably returning to the bus stop. I found my room, used the washroom, and collapsed on the bed. Woke up the next morning, not remembering what country I was in. I looked out the window at the city. China, somewhere in Beijing. But where? The first thing I do in a new city is go exploring, get my bearings. There were no bearings in Beijing and no familiar reference points. This was clearly uncharted waters. Beijing was a stunning metropolis packed with cars, people, bicycles, food carts, sellers, buyers, and more people. Every once in a while, I would have to find a place with no people and just sit down. The notion of personal space went out the window. I walked through busy streets, rode the packed subway, and found the largest park in the city. Once through the gates, the noise of the streets dissipated, disappeared, and calmness reigned. 
Groups of people practiced Tai Chi, ballroom dancing, flew kites, and played a game similar to hacky sack. At the other end of the park, I was thrust back into the noise and congestion. I found Tiananmen Square, the vast area where decades ago people protested and violence against citizens would always be remembered. Now it was full of tourists like me. To cross some roads, there were pedestrian tunnels that went underground. At a main intersection, I stepped down the steps and found rows and rows of people sitting on the ground, selling everything from food to DVDs to crafts. Each product rested on cloth-like material with wooden sticks on either end. As I moved through the crowd, I saw it come like a wave. From the other side of the tunnel, a message was being passed. One by one, like dominoes, each seller grabbed the wooden sticks, turning the cloth into a carrying case, packing their products in the makeshift bag and bolting to the entrance of the tunnel behind me. Within 30 seconds, the tunnel was completely deserted except for me. At the other end, a lonely police officer strolled into view, stopped and squinted at me. I smiled and took a few steps back towards the entrance of the tunnel. I looked to my right, and along the steps all the way up to the street, the sellers were hiding. They looked at me wide-eyed, putting index fingers to lips, asking me to be quiet. I turned back to the officer, smiled, and ran up the stairs. They looked at me wide-eyed, the one closest to me putting index finger to lips, asking me to be quiet. I turned back to the officer, smiled, and ran up the steps. I walked down Tiananmen Square towards the large portrait of Mao Zedong hanging above the Forbidden City. Perhaps I would find what I'm looking for there locked away. What was it I was looking for on this trip? Why had I traveled halfway across the world? A response to some spiritual crisis? Before I could answer this, a young woman who said she was an art student came up to me and asked if she could practice her English. She steered me towards a gallery where she wanted to show me some of her work. The gallery was really nice, but that was when the selling started. I got out of there without buying anything, but the art student was still at my side. I couldn't shake her. I went into a bookstore, she followed. I went into a shopping mall, thought I lost her, then she re-emerged at the exit. She wanted to show me an authentic Chinese tea experience. A few blocks later, we went into a department store-like building, and on the third floor we entered the authentic Chinese tea shop. It resembled a high-end office with wood floors and walls. A woman sat behind a large desk and we took two chairs opposite her. It felt like an interview for a job that I was clearly unqualified for. A well-dressed man came in with different types of tea. The woman behind the desk, let's call her the boss, explained the benefits of the tea. My art student friend translated. Oolong tea originally means black dragon tea and is produced by a process involving withering under the intense sun, enabling curling and twisting of the leaves. Helps to lower blood pressure, encourages weight loss, and reduces cholesterol. Teas such as Yellow Mountain Tribute helps with recovery from influenza, acne, and are good for the liver. Good old-fashioned green tea such as Snail Spring is linked to studies showing reduced risks of different forms of cancer. After my tea experience, I made my way back to Mao Zedong and the Forbidden City. I entered the city, Mao looming over the entrance, judging me, and I walked across the stone pathways. A giant city within a city. Red walls surrounded the buildings with vast areas between each successive temple. In Beijing, people were everywhere. But here, there was so much space, too much space. 
and people respectively whispered, not wanting the ghosts to hear their modern words. I veered off the path, crossed some imaginary line where the air was captured, catapulted away, and you heard the beating of your heart, and everyone seemed so very distant. Perhaps this was what I looked for, to move internally into myself, understand more the relationship of my mind, my body, my heart, and my thoughts, connect to some type of past life and experience a completely different sense of historical context. The Forbidden City consists of 980 buildings, with 8,707 bays of rooms and was the imperial palace from the Ming Dynasty to the end of the Xing Dynasty. The city was built over 500 years ago. Then this notion of history, not only one or two hundred years old, but centuries old, was like nothing I had ever experienced. With each step, there was a discovery of a new century. I spent hours in the Forbidden City, stepped from one era to another. The last temple was the oldest, and I stopped. The final building was a gift shop. Beside the gift shop was a Starbucks. Inside the Forbidden City, after walking through all this history, was a Starbucks. I looked from the ancient temples to this modern temple. The profundity disappeared, but a clarity ignited inside my brain. Maybe not so much clarity as a craving. I went inside Starbucks and enjoyed a comforting coffee in a different sort of temple. 20 hours on a train. Go home, open a closet, clean out all the contents. Wait, not the closet, the nook. The useless storage space nook under the stairs, the one with the slanted ceiling. Leave the bare bulb on. Take only what you can fit on your person. One bottle of water and a cardboard cup of dried ramen noodles. Close the door, stand, stooped over, and set your watch to count down 20 hours. Look at your watch every five minutes. Over time, the minute hand will seem to go backwards rather than forwards. You realize a gap has ripped open in the space-time continuum, and you have entered a black hole. This was your brain after 10 hours. After 15 hours, hallucinations set in. After 18, suicide by self-inflicted punches to the head become a realistic option. Eventually, the train arrived at my destination. After staying in Beijing for a couple of weeks, I welcomed the clean, early morning air of the small town. If I knew where I was, my body was still on the train, my insides continuing with the forward motion. In my travels, I'm drawn to mountains. Germany, Switzerland, New Zealand, Austria. Almost every place I visited, I made sure there was a stop atop a mountain. In China, that meant taking a train out of the metropolis. But unlike Europe, where you could be in a completely different country inside two hours, the sheer magnitude of space in China meant longer travel times. 20 hours long. I decided to get to the hotel on my own. It had sort of worked so far. The hotel was located in the heart of Tai'an, at the foot of one of China's five sacred peaks, Mount Tai. An ancient cement staircase wound up the mountain, 6,293 steps to be exact, and my plan was to climb every one of them. But not today. Today I would relax, take a hike around the mountain and through the tree-lined slope that led to a valley. The mountain rose from the ground towards the sky. Through a gated entrance, the path split in two. According to my map, the path veering to the left led around the mountain and offered a four-hour hike. Trees lined the way, the sun shone on my shoulders. About an hour into the hike, Buddha appeared. As Buddha's head bobbed closer, 
I stepped aside to allow four men carrying on their shoulders a life-sized golden statue of the suffering representative of the noble truth. What did this mean? My usual selfish disposition decreed these men carried the statue at this moment because they knew I was hiking. It must be a sign, but of what? After walking some more, I came across a temple under renovations. Buddha, apparently, was upgrading. The only other person I encountered was an old man. He approached fast, caught up to me, and fell in beside my steps. Gray-haired, buzz-cut, deeply tanned skin, he held his shirt in his hand, his bare upper body revealing a thick muscular torso. He said nothing, only smiled. We walked briskly for a while until we came to a rolling stream. I stopped, sat on a rock, hoping he continued on. We couldn't speak to each other, but the silence was even more awkward. He was a different kind of Buddha, animated, tanned instead of gold, and one who wouldn't take no for an answer. I shrugged to myself, just a bit of local Chinese hospitality wanting to show me the sights. Buddha motioned for me to get up. The sound of his voice alarmed me, my only comfort thus far being that we didn't have to talk. He broke the contract. Buddha grabbed my arm, pulled me to my feet, emphatically pointed at me, pointed at the path. We started up again, faster. Speedwalking turned into jogging, jogging turned into running. The path was not flat land. I didn't notice at first because the path traveled on a slight upward incline. Slight being the operative word, but incline being the more important one. My feet didn't notice because they were just trying to keep up. My lungs didn't notice because they were busy trying to breathe. If I stopped, Buddha rolled his eyes. He grew impatient. We climbed higher and higher. The trail cut through people's backyards, small stretches of gardens, chickens crossing our path, small children playing who stopped and regarded us as a strange pair. Lost track of time, almost like I was back on the train. Almost. Buddha ran up ahead of me. The path seemed to just end. He leapt off the end of the trail. I sprinted to catch up, and it was almost too late. The path ended all right, ended in a drop straight down the side of a cliff. I put the brakes on, slid across the dirt, tiny pebbles kicked over the edge, pinged on the jagged rocks at the bottom. The momentum of my body torqued over my feet, and I went headfirst over the side, grasping for something, anything. My hand grabbed onto the ground, stopped the forward motion, my head peeked over the ledge, and I stared straight down the cliff. My eyes scanned for the Buddha's body. I heard his voice from above. Was he in heaven already? Was there a heaven? I rolled onto my back. Beside me was a boulder. A rock wall raised five stories. Along the side of the boulder, metal handles cascaded, enabled the climber, if she or he so inclined, to capture the full extent of the view. The catch was the handle spiraled along the side of the boulder, facing the drop off the cliff. In my opinion, a major design flaw. Buddha poked his head out from the top of the boulder. He leapt off where I was sprawled, had scaled the metal-handled ladder. He motioned for me to follow, smiled, pointed to the view. A thought occurred to me. No one knew I was here. Sure, friends and family knew I was in China, but China is big. Buddha could chuck me right from this cliff. I could disappear and no one would know. Working on automatic pilot, beyond tired, my legs picked me up and I ran down the path. 
I heard Buddha's footsteps running after me. I stopped when my lungs felt like they were going to explode. Doubled over, I heard footsteps behind me. I ran as far as my legs moved, but didn't understand why this was even happening. Maybe he was just trying to help me get some exercise? The path seemed so much longer than when we went up. Along the stream, where the foliage grew denser, my lungs couldn't take any more. I leapt from the path, crawled under a bush, focused on slowing my heart rate, concentrated on controlling my breathing. Footsteps. He stopped, listened. He stood on the path right in front of the bush, scanned the trees. I watched him through a space in the bush. Finally, he kept running down the path. I waited and did not move from the bush for two hours, making sure he wasn't coming back. Finally, as the sun lowered over the horizon, I emerged and walked with tired steps down the path. The next day I was determined to walk up the 6,293 steps of Mount Tai in a much more direct way, and alone, which wasn't in the cards for me. When I almost reached the entrance to the foot of the mountain, a young man approached me, wanting to practice his English. He seemed harmless, and so we started up the path towards the steps. The young man was a student and said he walked up the mountain once a week. He spent most of his time alone studying, and the mountain hike provided exercise for both his body and mind. As we walked, he told me about the history of the mountain. Mount Taishan is one of five sacred Taoist mountains in China. For over 3,000 years, Chinese emperors of various dynasties made pilgrimages to Taishan. Confucius composed poetry and prose on the mountain, and stone inscriptions, tablets, and temples remain as testaments to these visits. Right up to the center of the mountain was the flight of stone steps. We took our first steps and had only 6,292 more. I was not a leader of men looking to prove myself through this pilgrimage up the mountain, but perhaps I would find something here, that something which seemed to elude me during this trip so far. At the very least, I hoped I would not climb all those steps only to find a Starbucks at the summit. The sun was out, the day was humid, the air turned cooler as we went higher, the steps were old, the stone cracked, the path was wide and snaked up the side of the mountain. I tried not to think of the difficulties of forming these steps and why, after thousands of years, the purpose of the steps at this particular moment was to bring a tourist such as myself with white, untanned legs to the top. We came upon a middle-aged man helping an elderly woman up the steps. He kept putting his hand on her arm to help, and she kept brushing him away. She wanted to make it to the top on her own. They were far behind us after only a short time and figured they would be at it for a while. They seemed okay with that. We climbed beside a man that was bringing supplies to the restaurant on the summit. He had a wooden staff across his shoulders. On either side of the wooden staff hung a crate of glass water bottles. There was another man about twenty steps ahead of him with a similar load. They walked slow but steady. Every day they brought supplies up the mountain in this way. A groove in their shoulder muscles had been worked in from the wooden staff. This was their job. Every day. I was tiring as we reached the halfway point. The student asked vibrant questions about my life in Canada. After much talking, he came to the topic I believed he really wanted to know about. He asked if I had a girlfriend and wanted to know about all my relationships. There is a girl that I really like, he said, but there's nothing I can do about it. 
What's love got to do with it? I asked. You have to get to know someone before that stage. Just talk to her. I must finish my studies, he said, then get a job, and then perhaps I can fall in love. As my body, legs, and feet tired, I think he grew tired of me. As I rested next to a temple built along the side of the mountain, the student continued on. We parted ways, and I hoped I didn't complicate his view of love. After my break, I returned to the steps until finally I neared the top. The stairs turned almost completely vertical at this point, and my legs were barely functional. It looked as though the stairs led right up to the deep blue sky. I summoned energy from somewhere and ran up the remaining steps, jumped across the threshold and landed at the top in a billow of dust and dirt. I crawled over to the side of the path and just sat there for who knows how long. Something shiny caught my eye. The sun's rays reflected off a piece of metal buried in the dirt. I brushed the dust aside, picked up a small silver amulet that resembled a traditional Chinese dress. This amulet had a story all to itself, but for now it became a symbol of my triumphant climb. Clouds were on the horizon. Not dark clouds, just enough to create an overcast. I've learned from previous experiences that the weather on top of mountains can change in an instant. My first mountain was in Oberstdorf, Germany. I accompanied my father on a business trip, and we ended up in the small town in the mountains. We rode the trolley up, and at the top I was left alone. A fog rolled in, surrounding me, and I remembered a silence so deafening a silence that was only penetrated by rocks falling off the cliff and slamming below. Everyone disappeared, and I never felt so lonely, but it was a calm loneliness. Ten years later, I returned to the same mountain in Oberstdorf by myself. On that sunny day, I rode the trolley, and the higher I got, the faster the clouds rolled in. At the top, a fog followed, the same fog, and the calmness and the silence returned. Back on Mount Tai, I followed a path that wound around the summit. As I walked, the clouds continued to roll in. I reached a lookout point, and no one was around. The fog moved swiftly, surrounding me. The movement of the fog brought silence, and everything disappeared. I heard a word, a vibration coming from the ground beneath my feet, emanating from the trees, from the rocks. The word I heard was a unity of silence, a word spoken in the wind, condensed in the fog, hidden away and only visible when surrounded by nothing, only visible when mortality and the impermanence of places and things ceased. The word I heard made a sound, but made no sound at all. It was transferred to me from the trees and the rocks and the fog. Thank you for listening. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of I'm Leaving It or any of my other books, they are available at most online booksellers. The live performances were originally performed and recorded at the monthly storytelling event, Stories We Don't Tell. To learn more about Stories We Don't Tell, head over to storieswedonttell.org. For everything else, please visit halldoor.com.